Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Dr. Melissa Boswell. And I'm Dr. Hannah O'Day. And we're researchers at Stanford University. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> oh my gosh, the tables have turned. Melissa is doing something absurd and I am the one laughing. <laughs> I don't know where this came from. It's 2023. We're mixing it up. It's We're mixing it up. It's a big year. <laughs> I'm Hannah Boswell. <laughs> and I'm... Wait, and I almost said I'm Hannah Boswell. <laughs> I'm Melissa O'Day, and we're here to confuse you in 2023. In 2023, we are throwing things around. (laughs) Well, welcome back. We're so excited that you're sticking with us in another year. Another great year of boom. (laughs) Well, we are, yeah, we're happy. We're happy to be back. We're happy to start this year off with a really awesome conversation with Professor Sylvia Blemker from the University of Virginia, and she's also the CSO and co-founder of Springbok Analytics. We had just a wonderful conversation with her. She talked about her love's research exploring muscle from cellular to whole body levels and neuromuscular disorders like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and she also highlighted something that I think we really enjoy talking about, which is teaching students all kinds of skills. And we did a little rebranding of this notion of soft skills to power skills. So we're excited to start the year off with some with some power up in yeah, here. Yeah, superpowers up in here. S- some superpowers up in here. Only if you listen to the episode, though, so stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. But before we get started, we have a bit of boom. Melissa, I think there's some powers in our bit of boom. Yeah, we have even more power skills from Sylvia. Sylvia presented 10 tips and tricks at the North American Congress on Biomechanics in 2022. And I took some notes on it. And uh, this is, I think, even before we knew that she would be on as it a was. guest. Um, well, we've so, always um, wanted her as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, but before it was set set in stone. <laughs> so I've, I've pulled it up, and we have 10 tricks and trips from Sylvia Blumker. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read a few of them um, that we can learn from her. The first one is to ask questions no matter the environment and make sure to listen. The second is be yourself, but also be open to reinventing yourself. Be Mm. okay with who you are now, but we change as we get older, and we really have to be open to new ideas and techniques and collaborations, etc. So I really, yeah, I like that one too, because I think be open to reinventing yourself is an interesting concept. You know, I think a lot of times we can get sort of set in how we like things and what we know, and it's nice Mm. to like have the opportunity to to change and and learn and grow yeah i've been listening to these meditations i've been trying to meditate more just as a a practice and one of them was talking about how it was like all this research says meditation changes your brain but everything we do changes our brain so that is true but like 
<laughs> literally like because you ate breakfast this morning that changed your brain like so I kind of like that and it kind of makes me think of this this tip from Sylvia too like being open to that change because we're always changing because we're always changing that's a really good point the rest of our tips are to surround yourself with great students and colleagues and people that you feel um, comfortable with but also be okay with putting yourself in situations where you feel uncomfortable like going to a new conference or you know attending someone else's lab meeting or something where you're going to be learning new information and being around new people she talks about seeing failures as learning opportunities, which is one of our favorites here on Boom to practice that. Seeing opportunities from both a short-term perspective and a long-term perspective. Learning from others, but being careful not to compare yourself to them. Mm -hmm. And then finally, having fun because there will be good days and bad days, but just enjoy the process and have fun with it, which we can totally get on board with, I think. Yeah. What great tips to start the new year with. I feel like this is always a time to set goals or intentions or resolutions. And I think all of these, any of these could be a good place to start. Yeah, definitely. So let us know if any of these resonate with you or what your goals are for the new year. We are happy to hear from you and be inspired by everyone's um, goals and intentions for this next year. And we'll jump into our interview now. Hello, everyone. Today, we are so lucky to be talking with Professor Sylvia Salinas Blemker. Sylvia is a professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia and CSO slash co-founder of Springbok Analytics. And we're really excited to talk about what both of those roles entail. And we're so excited to have you. Thank you for being with us today. Awesome. Thank you. Excited to be here. So can you first share when you knew that you wanted to be a biomechanist? I'm sure. I feel like that the answer, it's a little hard to say like the instant in time, like I didn't have like an aha moment per se. <laughs> but I mean, for me, I, I was always interested in movement and anatomy. I was a dancer growing up. I did ballet and I, and I liked physics and math too. So pretty early on, my mom got me a book called The Physics of Dance. Uh, and I just thought that was super interesting and cool. I did Antonia also, our last guest mentioned this book as well. It seems like it's inspiring many yeah. scientists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty old too. I should go find it. I wonder if I could run out. I think it's actually in my office at UVA. So that was inspirational. I guess the next moment for me was like trying to figure out what to study in college. I, you know, liked biology, was good at math overall. My dad was a mathematician. So you sort of had to do something related to math, but it just made a lot of sense to me to do that. And at that time, there were very few biomedical engineering programs. Before Whitaker, you know, they had all of their programs that they started, helped start. So I uh, randomly like got a letter in the mail from, I think it was Boston University. And it was, it's so funny. Uh, this one letter actually had a profound impact because th there was no internet then or anything. So I knew about engineering, but I kind of didn't want to do it because my brother was doing electrical engineering. So it's like, I don't want to do what my brother's doing. But then they said, well, you know, you did well in the math SAT and you say you're interested in medicine or biology. You should think about this new major called biomedical engineering. And I was like, whoa, that sounds cool. So that led me to apply to BME programs. And uh, there weren't that many at that time. So that was helpful. I ended up going to Northwestern for undergrad. Then my first biomechanics experience 
was doing research at the old, uh, now it's called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Then it was the Rehab Institute of Chicago. My first biomechanics mentor was Tom Buchanan, who's now at uh, University of Delaware, and working on a SIM, not open SIM, like the precursor SIM model of the wrist. I helped make make it wave. <laughs> like I looked at the, I was trying to make sure that the radial ulnar deviation moments matched like published values. And so then Tom Buchanan took a new position and uh, Scott Delp welcomed me to, to keep working with him. And through that, I just kind of got hooked on it and never really looked, you know, I had spent time in other research labs and other areas like material science and even like a biochemistry lab. And I thought research was cool, but those research topics just did not get me as excited as, as biomechanics. So here we are. It was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a refreshing story to hear too. Like you said at the beginning, it might not have been a singular aha moment, but maybe a series of serendipitous things occurring and also just continuing to follow your interest. I kind of think of that <laughs> that letter, the scene that came to mind, I think it's because I watched Harry Potter recently or rewatched it recently with like the owls flying in and dropping off the letters. For <laughs> it's like, you know, it's kind of this. Pre-internet, the owls yeah, were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's a little sad that I didn't look at Boston. I grew up in Kansas, so like going to Boston sounded like very scary to me. <laughs> but uh, going to North, you know, Chicago, Northwestern was a lot more like palatable. <laughs> and now we're yeah, we're so glad that you have stayed in the field throughout that time because your work has been really inspiring and made such a big impact. And we'd love if you could share a little bit more about what's been going on in your lab currently. So I'm continue to be interested in muscle biomechanics, really understanding how muscles work from the kind of the inside out, understanding from the very small scale of how um, muscle cells or fibers function, their mechanics and their biology, all the way up to understanding muscle uh, kind of distribution across joint systems and how that imp impacts uh, human movement. So over the years, I, you know, I sort of straddle between developing new tools and concepts to model and study muscle to applying them and thinking about ways to have impact in a wide variety of ways. I'd say the common threads are modeling, imaging, and skeletal muscle. I'm also very agnostic to which muscle. You know, there's sort of like lower extremity people and upper extremity people. And I'm like, they're all muscles. They all deserve our attention. So over the years, my lab has done modeling projects in imaging projects in a range of muscles, it, you know, lower limb, upper limb, but then a lot of like, we call them like the other muscles. So we study muscles involved in speech, muscles of the eye, the breathing muscles. In fact, I wore my diaphragm muscle earrings today. I, I just came across these ones. We study the diaphragm muscle, which controls breathing and exhalation is pretty cool. It has fibers that started at the rib cage and they insert into like a central tendon. I'm going to get, actually, maybe I'll take it off. That might be a little better. <laughs> and I get too close. And then they, so these are the fibers that come into a central tendon. So we find that convergence of fibers into that tendon structure interesting. And we've been studying, oh, now I have to get it back in. It's going to be tricky. Kind of looks like a scallop shell. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's helpful, too, I guess, for people listening. Who might be listening. But, but you might have to jump on the um, <laughs> YouTube channel to check out the diaphragm earrings. That's very cool. So they're all interesting. I feel like it's, you know, and depending on the application, we got into the diaphragm because we started studying uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a progressive muscle wasting disease, impacts almost all skeletal muscles, not actually not all of them, which is interesting. But the diaphragm is really highly affected later on and really uh, causes the kind of intense progression at the end for, for these boys. So we thought this is a really good muscle to get into because the mechanics are important for this clinical problem. So you mentioned it's incredible that you're like at all these different scales of development and also application, but then also cellular, muscular, whole body level. You're looking at multiple muscles. You said you're not just so, you know, lower body muscle or upper extremity muscle kind of person. So what's the motivation for looking at all of these different muscles? Because that not, that's not necessarily traditional. Some people, like you said, are sort of siloed into one area or one type of muscle. I mean, I think it's kind of like, in many ways, it's sort of a mindset, you know. I like to look at things from the big picture. I'm a bit of a nonlinear thinker and a little bit of like, like to connect dots. It's always been something that fascinated me, like connecting dots between fields, being interdisciplinary. I mean, our, our discipline by nature is in field is interdisciplinary, but I think I find it really cool to figure out, compare and contrast between different types of muscles. And so it makes sense to me to be like, oh, well, we could use the same modeling technique to study this muscle that elevates the velum in speech as it does the, you know, the diaphragm, you know, in breathing or one of the leg muscles. So, and then it also, you know, given that we develop new modeling techniques, I think it's nice to test them out in different muscle systems. So I think, you know, the other piece is this gives the opportunity for students that work on these different projects to really become the expert. You know, in a lab, like you want to have a lab environment with enough overlap in the tools and techniques and the type of thinking that people can really work together. But I think it's also really empowering for students to have a thing that's their expertise. So, uh, you know, when you're doing these different applications, you know, you're like, you're the diaphragm muscle person, you're the eye muscle person, you're the speech muscle, you know, and obviously there's some teamwork and overlap, but I think it's nice to have that ability for students to have ownership, these differing topics. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious about, you mentioned Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and I'd love to learn a little bit how you connect these different levels of muscular research to this disease in particular. Like how has it benefited taking this more, this larger span of research studying that disease in particular? Yeah, I mean, this one's an interesting case because it's really, you know, the cause is, is known, the mutation in the gene that encodes for dystrophin, which ultimately the lack thereof means that the muscles in all muscles in the body lack the dystrophin protein that connects the contractile apparatus to the extracellular matrix. It's actually sort of a conglomeration of proteins that are missing dystrophin and then the dystroglycan complex. So lots of big words, but really this protein it affects many things. One of them is mechanical. It means that the muscle fibers are um, have an increased susceptibility to damage 
from stress and uh, especially in eccentric contractions, but it also affects some of the cell signaling pathways of the muscle and how it regenerates and how it grows and how it responds to the environment. So, you know, I think that interaction of biomechanical, but other like biochemical signals is really interesting. And I think really kind of something that is probably true for every biomechanics problem in the end. So I just think this was, this one's a fascinating one to get going with, but in thinking about it that way, you really have to be able to have an understanding across the scales to really look at the problem correctly. And really, you know, when you develop theories at one scale or models at one scale, you really have to understand that, oh, there's more going on at the other scale to really contextualize what you're seeing and know kind of the meaning of it. So that's one sort of high level, like even within the lab, being able to be working at a larger scale, like we studied how movement pattern may influence how muscles are used eccentrically, which may then influence which muscles degenerate. The other thing that's interesting about this disease, back to this sort of all muscles question, is that while all muscles lack the dystrophin protein, they don't all get affected at the same rate. Some muscles go very, um, become very diseased, degenerated more quickly than others. They all start out pretty healthy looking, but over time, there's some muscles that go first and then the others and then the others and then the others. So like why some earlier than others. And so that, you know, those are interesting questions that we can start to ask with modeling and our approaches. And then, you know, sometimes quite, you know, findings at one scale sort of lead to detailed studies at the other. For example, we were finding when we were doing kind of muscle level experiments in mice of the tibialis anterior muscle, looking at kind of how fibrosis in the muscle impacts injury, regeneration, and stiffness. We found that like, Well, not all fibrosis is the same. Like we think fibrosis is like when you have muscle fibers, but then you have replacement of some fibers with fibrotic tissue, like collagen, ECM elements. And we realized that you can't just like look and find how much fibrosis is there and just kind of like say, oh yeah, that, that explains everything about what changes in the muscle. We realized it was a lot more complicated than that. So that led us to dive into the next level of detail and looking at Uh, SEM images of the muscle of the collagen organization and density and arrangement in uh, the dystrophic mouse model. Uh, We did that in the diaphragm muscle. So right there, right in that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Certain like region right here about. (laughs) (laughs) Now people will have to come over to the YouTube. Well, that is so cool to see how things connect and how like. I like how you said earlier, like it's like different students working on these projects that sort of motivate the different areas and the way that you explore, but then also motivate each other and how these things connect. And, oh, I'm seeing this. I can just see, yeah, and another student seeing this. Oh, why are those different? You know, what are the mechanisms there? So just just so cool. And I'd wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about what that interaction is like. How do you facilitate that? Is like, what is a lab meeting like? Is it like you're all talking in different subgroups? And how, yeah, just what does that look like? And how do you manage that such, um, you know, everyone's on different scales and different perspectives, but then synergizing everyone together? I will give you my answer. And I wonder, like, if you ask my students, my guess is everybody would have a slightly different answer, you know, because we all have our perspectives. Um, I mean, first of all, I have amazing students and all of them all the time. They're amazing because they're all brilliant, of course, but they're also just very caring and really value uh, having a positive environment and value teamwork and value, valuing supporting each other. So that is really the foundation. So, you know, lab meetings are they're not like 
we don't like have subgroups or anything like that. We all, you know, each semester, everybody takes a lab meeting to talk about their research and what they're up to. Like if they're working on a paper, they might talk about, you know, what they're working on. They might send out a draft and get feedback during the meeting. Or a lot of times it's practicing a presentation to the group, whether it's for a conference or for a, you know, a proposal meeting or, you know, whatever it is. So uh, we do different journal clubs and journal club selection is definitely always interesting. Like, you know, you'll have certain students choosing some types of papers and there's the other and they're pretty wide ranging. But I think as biomechanists, you know, especially for our lab, it brings it together as muscles. So I think, you know, they're all interested in, you know, and they can all learn from each other. So yeah, I think, you know, it's, there's not a super deliberate, like, here's how we organize. And because that's also not really my personality, sadly. <laughs> but I think it's <laughs> really, a, it, it's more like a, you know, an environment where everybody wants to learn from each other and support each other and help each other. Like, you know, when you give a presentation, I mean, this is actually the way Scott Delft's lab was, we always lean in and help each other. And in doing that, like, they all learn a lot because you're thinking about, whoa, what if you presented your data this way or that way? And then like, through that, they're kind of learning each other's area as it goes. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like this combination of curiosity and open-mindedness and wanting to help each other really does give a good foundation for being able to have this spread of different research topics and making it still be synergistic and build off of each other in ways that's... The other piece I thought I I forgot to mention is um, through collaborations, like a lot of these projects involve collaborations outside of the lab and some of them are at UVA or some of them are at other institutions. And so, of course, the students are intimately involved in those collaborations, getting to know whether it's a clinician or a, a colleague in a different field. So they learn a lot through that as well, through those interactions. And that I think helps them tremendously because of course, I'm not the expert on pretty much any of it at this point. And I'm okay with that. Like that's the whole point. I think those collaborations and also I think it's good skill development is is being able to speak with people outside of your field and, and sort of, you know, if you're having a collaborators meeting, student is going to be the one that presents what they're getting and get the feedback and have that like developing those, you know, what do you, some people call them soft skills. I think I heard somebody call them power skills, and I thought that was really cool. I like, love yeah. that. <laughs> I've been trying to think of a different term for that, so that's I'm gonna I'm gonna steal yes. that. They're not soft. No. Yeah. Powerful skills. Yeah, power <laughs> skills. Power skills. Yeah. So things like that, I think, are also help a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Another question we had in terms of your research was on the topic of sex-specific differences in musculoskeletal structure. And I'm curious on the impact of that, both from a research perspective, but then also potentially in daily life, what are sort of the implications of this type of research? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think uh, the implications, I think in terms of using modeling to address clinical problems, I feel like you know, laying a foundation for how to do that correctly can have a big impact on on a a huge number of clinical problems where whether it's the incidence rate is different between women and uh, men or um, the mechanism is different or uh, whatever it may be, but really understanding that we really need to, to, and I think a lot of the fields, a lot of, I think 
sort of a reflection of where the field has gotten, where now we can start to ask that question. Like before, I think we were so in the dark about mechanics of different injuries and, and uh, diseases that we weren't even at the point where we could ask why, how and why it would be different. But I think we are at a, t- at a point where we can do that. So we must. <laughs> and I think in terms of empowering the field to do that, I feel like that's kind of a calling that for some reason I decided to have. <laughs> I also think it's just the right thing to do, to have models that are reflective of male and female. It's, you know, I think a lot of, you know, growing up in a world where, um, you know, even I studied a lot of those original cadaver papers of muscle architecture and, and properties, but then also, you know, I, I dabble a lot into like that kind of exercise physiology field. And like, you know, it was normal to just say, well, we want to keep things simple and just use males. And I guess you can have a scientific rationale for that. But then in the end of the day, like, then this is only if you think if it stands to reason that you want to do research that's going to impact the world, then wouldn't you want to make sure it impacts the whole world? (laughs) You know, I I mean, and it's not like I want to come across as judgmental, because I know that, you know, you you get things started, and then those are the next steps. So I I don't want to like, be uh, negative about like, you know, the research in our fields to date, but I think it's just, you know, we have to do more now. We have the tools and techniques and the ability to do those larger studies. So now's the time. Melissa, I have a research fail. I haven't been able to reliably collect muscle activity, energy expenditure, and kinematics in my gait experiments. Yeah, that's a lot of things at once. Have you looked into using the new Delsys TrignoLink? It allows you to integrate with many different biomechanical and physiological tools together. Oh, Delsys. Yeah, I've used their EMGs before. I didn't know about this TrignoLink module for integrating those different types of data streams, though. That sounds super helpful. Yeah, and it's just as easy to use and reliable as their other tools. And if our listeners would like to enter the draw and have a chance at winning some of the latest Delsys equipment, they can visit delsys.com boom. I like that you framed it as a responsibility. Like, I think in, you know, looking at everything in context in the past, like you said, that wasn't necessarily possible or that was an assumption that we had to make or something. But now taking on that responsibility of our tools and technology and also our, I think, perspectives have shifted a little bit too about what is okay or and, and pushing past what's just simple and doing what's right or, you know, what we're called to do. So we're excited that you've taken on that calling and yeah, get to learn about it from you. <laughs> So switching gears a little bit away from your research, we also want to take some time to talk about academic entrepreneurship. Is that something you've explored and are, you know, an expert in as well? And we know that you're, we introduced you earlier as the co-founder of an AI power analytics company called Springbok Analytics. Am I pronouncing that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And you run that alongside other researchers from UVA. Can you just tell us about how that group came together? You know, what are your goals with the company? And just, yeah, generally how handling that entrepreneurship experiences with all that you have to do on your academic to-do list as well. I will say I'm not an expert. (laughs) (laughs) So You've got experience. uh, Yes, experience, but not expert. (laughs) I'm a work in progress. So uh, we, yeah, we, uh, 
Springblack came out as a result of research that I'd been doing in collaboration with uh, Craig Meyer and Joe Hart, both who were at UVA. Now Joe Hart has actually moved to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. But we uh, had done a bunch, like uh, started, embarked on this project to pretty much develop a technology where you could use MRI to image all the muscles of the lower extremity. To my point of like, all the muscles. <laughs> That's always like, I just sort of like, I think it's important to challenge to new, move past like very focused, isolated things. And I'd been doing MRI based modeling, you know, since my master's or even actually before when I was an undergrad, I was segmenting arm muscles uh, for Wendy Murray. I was her uh, undergrad uh, and she's, you know, a famous biomechanist. So she mentored me then and started to see the value of using MRI to quantify uh, muscle architecture properties, geometry, and stuff like that. Then my master's work was using MRI to do MRI-based modeling of the lower extremity. We did the crossing the hip and the knee. And then after that, just been doing MRI-based stuff for a long time and just sort of thought, well, I think it would be really cool if you could sort of develop a imaging protocol, but then also an analysis method to just cover all of the lower extremity muscles. Because, you know, there's a lot of research using, you know, bits and pieces to study this muscle and this patient population, that muscle, that patient population, but not something holistic, which I think ultimately holistically in the application I was interested in then was cerebral palsy, where every kid is a little different and different muscles are affected differently. So that we developed that and we did it, you know, we developed a normative database, images and, and muscle volumes. And then we st- get kids with CP and we did a bunch of different patient populations and then moved on to athletes. We were also funded by um, a foundation called the Culture Foundation that provides like uh, endowed money to actually Stanford has one. There's a number of them around the country and they support translational research. So we first sought our funding from them and and they were supportive of our work and funded us uh, multiple cycles, but they were really the ones that sort of kind of pushed us and like encouraged us to think more entrepreneurial and translational. Like we think you have something here, you should think about it. So we sort of decided, well, let's give that a go. (laughs) So we um, applied for SBIR funding and we got that. So then we were kind of like, okay, we got to do it now. So we hired our first employee Shui Feng, who's our first CTO. And, um, you know, that was a long time ago, actually, that was in, I believe it was 2013. And so we were for a while, had to spend a lot of time figuring out how to make our processing automated, because it took about like 50 to 60 hours per scan to do that on the research side. But as a result of the research, we had developed the training data set that we needed to develop the AI approach. I mean, as you know, like uh, for a task like that, you really need a train, like a really solid, big training data set. And that was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of hours by many students. Because how many muscles is that in the lower body? 35 per leg. Wow. Per leg. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure in, in, especially in individuals with different disorders or diseases, I'm sure between differences between legs can also vary a lot or even in athletes you know there or right. people who you know, tend to have a favored leg just as you have a favored arm so those between yeah no you see a lot of asymmetry even within the healthy population you see a somewhat decent level of asymmetry and it's not like the dominant side is always bigger for every muscle there's there's a fair amount of like flip flop 
between them. So yeah, that's, um, I think it is important to get both legs. Through the course of our SBIR funding, we sort we got the technology to a point where now it's pretty much less than an hour. Can we do the AI processing? And then we still have a somebody manually look through this segmentation to make sure it's accurate. And then as a result of all of our data, we have some really cool ways to display information about muscle volumes in a way that can be useful and actionable by whether it's an athlete or um, somebody recovering from an injury or a surgery. So now we've kind of we've moved more to the commercialization phase of a company. So now we have, you know, have investor money and we're selling, still writing grants and further R&D. Um, that's really my role now as uh, CSO is exploring, you know, we have a product, but then we're kind of continuing to advance that, but then also developing other products that are, um, you know, have kind of varying applications. Can you give an example of, I, I liked how you said that, there are cool ways to understand and analyze the data now and you're presenting understandable parameters and ways to think about um, the muscles. Can you give a just one example of maybe some parameter or analysis that might come from that? that- sure. I mean, one very simple one that we were just talking about is percent asymmetry for each muscle. We display it visually in a color code, like where, um, you know, like the bigger side is blue and the smaller side is red. So if it's blue and red, it's very asymmetric. If it's tan, it's symmetric. So it just gives you this visual of like, okay, which side is... Um, and so especially in somebody who has had an injury or surgery, it's it makes a lot of sense. But then what's cool is that you see it on the muscle by muscle basis. So sometimes you see like some muscles like very asymmetric you know, one way, and then you see the compensation of the synergist muscle. So the other metric that we have, uh, we call it a Springbok score. Uh, (laughs) So one thing in our healthy database we found is that across healthy non-athletes, each muscle volume scales proportionally with the product and height and mass pretty well. So now we can uh, use that to say, okay, for uh, given somebody's height and mass, how big would you expect that muscle to be? And then express, like scientifically, we always present that as a Z-score from, as comparison to the normative database. We actually converted that into something we call the Springbok score, which is very akin, but instead of in Z-scores, which would go from, you know, positive four to minus four or something like that, depending on who it is. Now it goes like from zero to 100 and 50 is average. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's just a more interpretable number than like a weird, you know, decimal type number. Right. But with scientific backing behind it, which is nice. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That was one of the first type feedbacks we got from some like, you know, test users that were um, helping us sort of explore how to to turn it into a product was like, you got to make this number more meaningful. So, or more uh, simple to understand. It's really cool to get that type of feedback that you wouldn't necessarily think about unless, and you're saying too, unless you're trying to translate into a, a product or a company where you're, you are um, doing user testing and that sort of thing. And I'm curious about the additional benefits of actually taking your research and translating it to or forming a company with it versus sort of keeping it as a, a tool that your lab has developed. And what are, what are the benefits of actually making it into a product or commercializing it? I think if it, if you really want to test out, like if you, it, it all depends on if you feel like it's something that 
okay, it's time to really see if this would actually have an impact. <laughs> you know, a lot of research is just not quite there yet, right? It's not it turned into something, a product that could be like monetized and sold, or, you know, it's more of a concept or more, maybe more, it's more of an open resource, which we've done that too, shared code on SimTK or, you know, other things. So everything has its like, you know, type of impact. But I think if you have something where you feel like, oh, this could have an impact, you know, and you have to be um, kind of open to putting yourself out there. Uh, it is very like, humbling and you feel like you're at like fish out of water like at least I do a fair amount definitely putting myself in my out of my comfort zone a lot and then you know having uh having a good team to like and people that have bought into what you do I think there's a lot of value to doing this you know I think that's how you know I, I think a lot of times research will will sit and that's okay I mean it's it's public if it's published and everything like that's a lot of my lab is in that category. Um, and that's great. But I think it's, it's also exciting. If you have an idea, you might as well take it for a spin, you know, <laughs> the worst can happen. And it's still in the papers. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's true. Well, it's fun to hear about like your perspectives from both sides. And I like that you said earlier, you're not an expert in this yet, but that's kind of the best We're we're not experts in this either. And maybe not a lot of our listeners are too. So it's really great to hear your perspective and your learnings too from your experiences and your diversity of experiences. I really liked in your bio, you talked about um, being a wife and mother of two, making puns, hiking, doing crafty things and playing tennis. These are all things that in addition to talking about your research and, and the company, I feel like help define and shape who you are. And I'm wondering, these are not often things that we talk about in academic culture. Like these aren't things I know about some of my favorite professors, you know. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit and chat about that. And I'm wondering, what are some of the challenges like that you see in academic culture? Why aren't these things shared? And just what is, yeah, what has been your perspective on that being an academic and also seeing the entrepreneurship side, I guess, as well? So, okay, so the academic, so why is it not that normal to talk about things like that? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I, can't, I can't say why I think that the culture, academic culture, why it has been that way. I feel like it's better to be like a genuine, authentic person. I think that's always better. <laughs> you know, some of it is like learning about who you are and what you're comfortable with sharing, but I feel like culture or like uh, groups become a lot more, what do I say, like supportive when people are authentically who they are and share their whole experiences. Um, I think that's really important. It's a good, it's a part of who we, you know, if you want to really work with somebody, it's not just a set of tra transactions with them. Like you give me this, you give me that. We talk about this. We talk about that. You like, you get to know somebody. I guess the other piece is, I think the academic mindset sometimes is like, oh, this is so hard to do the academic thing. So we must say that we work all the time and it's so hard and like, mm, mm, mm. I'm so busy, I never work and, or I never do anything but work or whatever. You know, like there's a lot of that. It's like really not true, I don't think. I mean, there's obviously like any vocation that is, you know, something that you're really passionate about and you want to succeed at, you're going to work hard, but academia is not the only one. You know, but why are we the ones that have this like sort of thing where you can't be a, a doing you know, talk about anything else and you have to say how hard it is and all the grants and everything? And those things are hard, but so is it to be many other things. 
like many things, including most importantly, being a good parent. Like that's pretty much the hardest thing, the hardest job there is out there, I think personally. And, you know, many people do it. (laughs) So doing anything really well, it, it takes a fair amount of work, but it doesn't, you don't have to make it totally define you or you don't have to um, pretend like you don't have a a life, you know, I I think you can have a life. (laughs) That's such a great point of staying authentic and, and really just leaning into what it is that you value. And I remember talking about this with Scott recently, where I was like, yeah, I just hear that, you know, you're just working all the time in academia and, you know, and, maybe people are suggesting industry so you can have a more balanced life he's like you whatever job you do like you're gonna be the same person and and it's not really the job it's that Mm. you know it's you setting those boundaries and you know perhaps in academia we just have really passionate people who enjoy working a lot but then it's also important to make sure to prioritize these these other things like you're talking about i agree yeah i mean i guess the piece that i think is good is being okay. I think the more of us that are okay with not perpetuating this like intense culture, more like we do what we want to do. And uh, we also have a life, I think that will help change the culture, you know? Yeah, it's such an important point. It's like, I don't also want to be negative on people who might want to work a lot and genuinely enjoy that. And it's like, but we don't have to do that if that's not Something that, yeah, feels fulfilling for us or it's what we want in the long run. So the truth is, too, like it's a unique job where you're going to have moments. I mean, just like grad school was very much like this. You have moments of like just intense, intense work. And then you other have times where you're, you know, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, uh, it's it's like this, right? I mean, the best part about it is you're your own boss. Like you get to decide what you do, when you do it, how you do it. and where you do it, all those things. There's not many other jobs out there like that. Well, speaking of those moments of, uh, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, <laughs> we like to end with, a. well, we have two more questions left for you. One of them is, can you tell us about a time that you feel like you failed and what you learned from that? I feel like I just fail every day pretty much, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> can relate. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, science, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, can I spin that around for a slightly, I mean, I'm happy to share many stories, but I have a bit of like a philosophy too. And it has a little bit to do with some thoughts I have about what may um, prevent some like younger women to go into like STEM fields. And I think it's a perfectionism tendency that many women have, myself included, how we're kind of constantly judging ourselves and achieve, striving for pretty much an unachievable level of perfection inside and out, like how we look, what we do, what we wear, what our work looks like, how we, you know, all the different things. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, the, you know, I guess life in general, but especially, you know, a career in STEM and, and, you know, in the academic cultures, you know, research is just a whole bunch of different failures. And so it's like the academic life. I mean, you're constantly writing grants and you're getting rejections and the paper rejected or whatever, some, you know, so many different things. And so if you, like, that can be very much at odds with this sort of tendency to want it to be perfect, Right to want things to be perfect and want people to perceive you're perfect and just be perfect. So I feel like it's like almost just realizing that that's a tendency and being okay with 
not being perfect, just being who you are and being okay with failure and being humble about it. But just moving on, like, is, is just a really critical part of this type of job because ultimately, you know, we were talking about impact and different ways to have impact. And what you like, I think we're all in this world because we want to have an impact. And so if you focus on that as opposed to like whether you achieve that impact by being your per, like a whatever that unachievable perfect version of yourself is, that doesn't matter if you were perfect or not. If you know what matters is, is the impact you wanted to have. So I think it's just a sort of a thing that I've thought about a lot over the years and something I try to encourage people to fight the perfectionism tendencies which I see a lot more in, in, in uh, female students. And reframing, I like the reframe to the thinking about the larger picture, right? And the impact that we want to have and like that we all share that vision. So mm-hmm. let's do what we can to help each other and ourselves like get there, you know, not. Yeah, it helps take the pressure off a little it does, bit. Like yeah. it's not necessarily about me being this extreme achiever. It's about something more something bigger, right? That, that we can, and feels more collaborative too, and less, you know, like I need to be some certain way. You'll empower yourself to take more risks too, because, you know, with this like perfectionist tendency, we're always doing the calculus of like, well, what if I fail at that? That's going to like, that's not good. But if you can like take sort of a release that burden a little bit, then you could going to be more successful, honestly, and happier doing it. We have one more question, but I want to take a moment to like pause on this because I was having a conversation with some friends the other day and they were kind of feeling like sort of deflated from a fellow lab mate who like had submitted something to nature and they felt like so bad that they hadn't like had anything worthy of submitting to nature yet. I felt like there's this disconnect, like that's sort of, we were talking about how that's a little bit, that feeling is so valid, right? That's a feeling I feel like we've probably all had in comparing and to others, but also like thinking about this bigger picture, like that's such a small picture, short term view of something, right? Mm -hmm. Like that nature paper is just one thing. And then like thinking of it, the scope of like a research career, right? Like that paper is just one drop in that bucket of a research career. Or even if you zoom out even further, just beyond one scientist, right? Like talking about a field, like one, it's not always often that like one paper is right, like the like defines a whole field. So like how to have impact on that scale is like not just about one nature paper, right? It's about a series of really good and rigorous and technical work that, that you create and doesn't have to be defined by having a nature paper. Right. I mean, here's maybe one way to look at it. Like I would probably argue that most research that had an impact wasn't in nature. It's just one journal, right? So it's like not the only way to have impact. It's a great journal, but it's not the only way. (laughs) And I guess the other one is like what the quote, like comparison is the enemy of joy. And we're also like programmed to compare and compare, but it's never good. It's never helps. Like it's natural, but like I would tell your friend, like, you know, like that's great for your lab mate, but that's, it doesn't mean that you're any worse. <laughs> you're still doing your research. You're doing a good job. Like uh, in comparison is just, there's not everything. Everybody's different. Every project is different. Every timing is different. Like so many things are different. And so, yeah, there's no reason to, to compare like that. Thank you for saying all those things and sharing your perspectives. Like I, yeah, I feel like we could take a deep breath in this conversation. Yeah. I hope everyone else can too. And just um, practice it, right? And pra- because yeah. sometimes I'm like, and then I'll get yeah. mad at myself <laughs> for then comparing yeah. and I'll be like, oh, 
no, I need to not do that. And then I'm like, okay, this is just like more of a spiral of like being hard on myself and yeah. like thinking that I need to be perfect. <laughs> but, you know, it's something yeah. that we can all practice together. I'm not good enough at being imperfect. Yes, exactly. <laughs> The other thing that little like a word of advice I like to or related to what you were saying with your kind of internal dialogue there, Melissa, it's actually um, uh, something that and maybe you've heard this before, but something that came uh, from my good friends I play tennis with where, um, you know, in some ways tennis is like a microcosm or playing a sport is a microcosm of, of like kind of the emotions of life where you know, you have like lots of failures, lots of misses. It's, I don't know. You get in your head. If you're negative about your game, you're going to play worse. If you uh, have a good, confident attitude, you're going to play better. If you can move on from a bad point, that like, you know, you'll do better. All those different things. You know that. But it's easy to spiral into like a negative, like, oh, I'm terrible at this game. And uh, one thing we tell each other is, uh, like, I had hear my friend saying that to herself, or my friend hears that me saying that to myself, she'll just say, don't talk to my friend like that. So like thinking about like, would you ever like even pausing yourself and be like, imagine if you were, you know, this was your friend talking or somebody talking, hearing like you, somebody heard you talking to yourself. <laughs> that, that was weird. But like, you wouldn't say that to your friend. Right. You would never say well, that to you your would. friend. What you say to yourself <laughs> is often not what you would say to your friend. <laughs> If you're Melissa's friend, she might say it to you. But. I'll let you know. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I do agree. Like the things we say to ourselves. No. You know, challenging you, it's not like, you know, they would lift you up. They wouldn't talk to you so negatively. Well, Sylvia, how can people follow you in your work and, you know, keep tuning into the amazing impact that you're having in the work that you're doing? Let's see. My lab has a Twitter. It's at UVAM3Lab. And it's mainly a way that we broadcast like successes of students presentations they always have to have a pun there's a pun in every single one sometimes (laughs) except for one recent one that a student uh sahani she's a gold star pun there's a lot of punning in my lab wow you know it would fit right in (laughs) (laughs) that's what my friend says about me (laughs) oh really oh that's amazing good at puns yeah good (laughs) You would fit right in for sure. Yes. But when we thought we were making a pun, but it was in a tweet, but then we realized afterwards that it's really not a, a pun at all. So it was, we laugh about it. But anyway, every, every one of them. <laughs> yeah. At least an attempt to dig that up and put it in That's the show notes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we always put quotes around like the pun part. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in case you didn't get it, this is a pun. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this particular one was like, what? <laughs> so then, yeah, uh, Springbok has a LinkedIn, and I think there's an Instagram account, but I don't really know much about Instagram. Okay, well, our listeners will know how to find it. <laughs> <laughs> Slash, we'll put it, yeah, we'll find it and put it in the notes. So, besides, I guess, besides future tweets and puns about biomechanics, what are you excited about for the future of biomechanics? I feel like mechanics becoming more relevant to the whole world. I feel like I hear the word biomechanics said outside of a biomechanics setting more and more and more. I think because of like the like 
advent of uh, wearables, of like markerless or um, app systems that can monitor motion like your work, Melissa, like things like that. I feel like it's just exciting to see like that we're going to enter kind of the mainstream, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a huge opportunity for us as biomechanists to just keep pushing the world forward and sort of driving innovation that like use that as a momentum builder to further have an impact on the world. So I don't know, I feel like I guess and maybe it's just my vantage point being on the outside also on the commercial side with Springbok. I think what I see there is like, there's a lot going out there. And I think it's important for us biomechanists to be in those conversations to be like driving that research to make sure that what goes out in the world is scientifically grounded, and used correctly. And, and um, so I think to me, that's, that's an exciting we're kind of at an exciting inflection point where our work is no longer just in the lab. I think that's something we're, I mean, I know that's something we're both excited about, but then I think this additional point to what you're saying of we're becoming, biomechanics is becoming more mainstream, but then making sure that it's being used in the right ways that are helping people and being mm-hmm. understood in the right ways. All of that is extremely important. And I do feel that as part of our as part of our responsibility um, as scientists to make sure that information that's getting out is is accurate and and, and helping people, but so it'll be interesting, I think, to see data that's driving it is representative as well. You know, we're back to our sex specific, and there's other areas like that that need further data and further kind of development. So I think that's the other piece that we can really like drive forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's so many. New and exciting opportunities arising in the field, and I think your work is such a a great example Mm -hmm. of the many different spans of research in biomechanics, and I think will be really inspiring to everyone listening um, and on the many different applications and, and impacts you can have in the field. So thank you for sharing all of that and your advice in entrepreneurship and these academic culture and, and all of these different areas. We really appreciate your thoughts and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for doing this. It's amazing. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's uh, you guys are an inspiration and in taking this on and, you know, you, like you guys are doing that, getting biomechanics out there, really making it accessible to all. And I think it's, it's really exciting. Well, it's thanks to people like you that make the podcast what it is, too. So we appreciate it. And yeah, thanks, Sylvia, so much. It's so great to hear those words, especially coming from yeah, <laughs> someone in the field like you. So we super appreciate it. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. What an amazing interview. It is just so nice talking to Sylvia. I feel like she was a role model early on in my biomechanics career, and it's just so cool to finally have her on and talk about so many different, from her research being so interdisciplinary and at so many different levels, to her juggling both academia and entrepreneurship, and, you know, really caring. She truly cares about her students and mentoring and and their growth. So it's just so cool to see such a well-rounded person. I completely agree. There's so much to learn from her, and we're so happy that she took the time to be on with us. And we're also so grateful and happy that you took the time to listen to the episode. So thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, and to Peter Washington for the music. 
And you can submit a research fail. You can submit a person to who you want us to interview or get involved or email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. Make sure to check out Boom on YouTube as well. I'm Melissa. I'm Hannah. Biomechanics, Biomechanics of our, our minds. minds. <laughs> <laughs>